With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Copyright 2.0 Show. My name is Jonathan Bailey, and I am not an attorney, but I am a copyright blogger at Plagiarism Today, which can be found at plagiarismtoday.com. My name is Evan Sherris, and I am an attorney. The opinions I express, however, are intended to be general commentary and are not legal advice. No attorney-client relationship is formed, nor should any such relationship be implied. If you require legal advice, please consult with an attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction. And hello, everyone, and welcome to the Copyright 2.0 Show, episode number 355. It's been a long time, but we are indeed back, ready to talk some copyright news. And as usual, I'm here with the great Evan Sheras. Evan, where are you calling from, calling in from this week? An undisclosed location in a mountain in Tibet? Um, Who told you? So, oh, so good. I shouldn't, get, I shouldn't give away my sources. On the on the run, I'm assuming from the people you know in Washington D.C., where you usually um, are calling from. Well, I'm I'm, I'm actually back home today. Oh, and, okay. uh, You can tell by the uh, the usual background. Um, yeah, I was running around this week. I was at a few conferences, and uh, I was uh, in Orlando a few weeks back. So that's why we're delayed in uh, getting the next show out. But uh, I'm back, and I'm ready to talk uh, copyright. Yeah, we um, got a, a, it's been a while for us. So in a way, this is kind of like a weird nostalgia trip. We've got about like a month's worth to go through, so there's a lot of stories in here that are old, but I think are really entertaining to talk about, and some that are more new, but is there anything going on that you want to pimp or talk about or discuss? You know, uh, I've got first one quick note to say that I'm happy we're not talking about APIs today, at least we won't be talking about APIs for a little bit until the decision comes out, because I, I talked to Terry Hart, I had a beer with him, and he's oh, like, yeah, you know, uh, you, didn't get to, you didn't get APIs quite, quite correctly, and he was like, well, it took me over two years of thinking about them to get them. And then I was like, you know what? I probably didn't. So, um, you know, I, I, I definitely uh, – I'm glad we're not talking about them today. You know, I, I, I learned in my one meeting with Terry Hart to um, to guide the subject carefully <laughs> sometimes because he will he, – he loves to talk about his copyright stuff and he, the things He's, he knows he, he knows will talk about. Stuff. Huh? Yeah, he knows his stuff, and so he knows he he definitely knows his stuff. No one's saying he doesn't know his stuff, but man, can he go on when he's passionate about it? And he's passionate about a lot of the stuff. He sure, is. and that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Not a criticism of Terry, but yeah, just be warned: a casual beer with Terry Hart rarely ends up being a casual beer with Terry Hart. That's what I'm trying uh, to well, say. <laughs> yeah, well, I had a really good time talking to him. I he has a great time talking to him too. I actually got to hang out with him and Devlin and a few others uh, not that long ago, and it was an awesome cool. time. We were at Pat O'Brien's um, here in the French Quarter. It was pretty awesome. 
But yeah, so glad we're not talking about APIs. No APIs this week. We can get that one wrong again later. Yeah. <laughs> At our leisure, we can get that one wrong when the Supreme yeah. Court comes out. Or maybe we should just have him on I and have him explain idea. it. Yeah. That seems the fairest solution to me. You I know, mean, I mean, we definitely need a guest appearance when it comes to uh, yes, if, if, the, to if, the APIs, and then he could also get it wrong and have someone who's actually in computer science be like, yeah, no, exactly. it's this, and then we can come full circle with us maybe correcting that person. Yeah, exactly, and you know, because I think the, that's the only fair way to do it. If he's going to point out where we're wrong, he has to come represent and uh, correct us. Fair enough. I'm gonna Fair. Uh, I'm gonna send him a quick email and let him know. No, <laughs> that sounds like the perfect solution to this problem. But we have a lot of stuff that's not API related to go over this week. Well, why don't you um, tell us what we're gonna be talking about? Uh, this well, let's week. see. We're starting off talking about the Jersey Boys and a case that kind of snuck up on a lot of people. Um, we also have a not quite so recent, but an update on the Sirius XM case versus the Turtles. That's the band, not the animal. Um, we also have another update on the Korean War Stamp case. This is one you said you're interested in and looking forward to talking about. Um, we also have, excuse me, I'm getting a frog in my throat here, a, um, update on the Mega Upload case and specifically the first guilty plea in it, surprisingly enough, and what that might mean for Kim.com, especially as he, uh, is battling for his assets as, as, his assets, better say that very, very carefully, um, as we speak. Um, the Blurred Line trial kicks off, we got some updates there, um... And uh, the U.S. Copyright Office, interesting proposal from them talking about uh, uh, music copyright and music licensing. And, of course, we can't skip the fact we we were not, we have not had a show since the Super Bowl. That's on us. But we didn't get the, well, I think we did, but we didn't get to talk about Left Shark. We are remedying that this week. And finally, uh, Pandora. An interesting argument got slapped down, I guess you might say, this week. So we got a lot to go over. It's a lot of ground. We do. We do. And, uh, you know, I'm only sad that we can't talk about Left Shark the whole show. I I would love to talk about Left Shark the whole show, too. And, you know, if we got back on track, maybe we can do like a, a Left Shark special edition or something, you know, get back on track, get caught up on all the stuff, you know. The whole show just being Left Shark. I would love uh, a show based on Left Shark because actually it touches on a lot of stuff. It's, it actually it's does some, a lot of actually, IP issues. A lot of IP issues because you got copyright, you got trademark issues there, and you've got a lot of interesting technology involved, such as 3D printing. You've got fashion design and the board trend, and where it sits on the edge of copyright, or sort of in the uh, Netherlands that we do not go in copyright circles. It's, right, which is something we're going to talk about. Is that you know when does a costume qualify for copyright? Yeah, exactly. Uh, other other issues of ownership of copyright is. Uh, when you come up with an idea, but you're going through the NFLs, who really owns the uh, the idea? Yeah. Uh, so uh, that's exactly. stuff we'll be able to talk about when it. Uh, when yeah. It Fashion design. Basically, if fa- we if copyright were the Lion King, that would be the area that Mufasa warns us not to go. <laughs> Fashion design, but we're gonna go there today and get trampled by wild boars. I'm sure. Oh, too uh, soon. Oh, too soon. Too soon. I should say hyenas. They're going to trick us into that. But yeah, it's always too soon to talk about that. But anyways, we'll start off with something slightly happier. The Jersey Boys, a.k.a. the Four Seasons. That's right. I'm not really sure how that... um... I'm not really sure how that naming naming convention came around. I'm not familiar enough with the Four Seasons 
to um to talk about that. But yeah, basically a little bit before our time. That's yeah, right. a little before either of our time. Um, this is one time we can actually uh, say that this is before our time. Um, but long story short, here a um one of the members of the Four Seasons, um, uh, Tommy DeVito, was sued by Donna Corbrello, who was the late. It was who is the uh, widow, I almost said she's the late husband. Um, she is the widow of the auto, of a, a person who collaborated in the autobiography of the Four Seasons. Um, it was called, the autobiography was called, it was the basis for, I should say it was the basis for the Jersey Boys, the play, the very popular yeah, it's musical. it's about the life of the band. Huh? It's it became, about the life and story of the band that we, uh, uh, you know, that became a best-selling um Broadway play. And, yeah, it, uh, it, and it went on tour. I know it came by New Orleans not that long ago. Um, I passed up tickets to see it. Uh, I can't say anything else. I didn't know enough about it at the time to even consider it. Um, this is one of my dad's favorite really? uh, plays and stories. So, uh, you know, this is one of, the, one of the stories and some of the songs in this particular uh, story and event have been around my life for a long time. Yeah, I can understand that, and I grew up listening to oldies too, and I did listen to some Four Seasons, but it definitely was not something like really on my radar either. Um, so, in the case, uh, we have the, uh, the late widow uh, looking for royalties, yeah. based on the autobiography written uh, for her late husband, um, but uh, it was denied uh, on a trial. Yeah, it was denied on a trial, and the basic argument, my understanding was at the trial level, was that and this is where it gets kind of weird is the division between an autobiography and a person's story. You know, I can't, you know, I don't hold a copyright. No one holds a copyright on my life and the facts contained therein, but you can hold a copyright, of course, in an autobiography about said life. Right. Um, you know, there are two pretty distinct areas of law. One is copyright, which is a, you know, a federal law, which is the same across the country. Now, the other one is rights of publicity. There is actually a very, yeah. a very different regime of right of publicity rights across the country. Um, uh, so, yeah, the, you had some right of publicity issues. And then uh, the, the copyright issues in the case um, revolved around a number of things. And one of the main and most interesting areas which it revolved around was what are the rights of uh, co-copyright owners? Because you had multiple copyright owners uh, in this case. And when one of the, let's say you, uh, you know, write a song with a friend and, uh, you know, the friend goes without your permission and, and licenses it out to somebody else, what are his rights, what are your rights, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And one of the key rules dealing with that is if you have co-authors and they're true co-authors, you are not allowed to enter into exclusive licenses with anyone else. You can enter exactly. into, well, you know, non-exclusive licenses as long as you divide up the revenue equal in proportion either to the contract or evenly, if there isn't one. Right. So each of you has the right, if you're a, a co-author with an, another person, to make a deal uh, with the piece that you've written. So if you want to go and you know license it to person A or person B. You've got that right. The only thing you can't do is give that person an exclusive right because, you know, it that then violates the other person's ability to make a deal. So that's why you need both co-owners' uh, consent when it comes to um, issuing an exclusive license. And um, and this stuff can get yeah. really complicated when you have more than like two or three co-authors. 
Exactly. Like, when you get like dozens of collaborators, it can be a major headache. And that's one of the reasons why if you do contribute to something that's going to have a lot of potential co-authors, they'll usually have you sign or waive those rights or sign some kind of arrangement appointing someone a representative or something, you know, so that it's streamlined and they can actually, you know, have some kind of sane licensing scheme. Right. And so the interpretation of the deal here Mm -hmm. Um, one side, which was uh, Cabrello, was, was saying that uh, he had granted a selectively exclusive license rather than a transfer in copyright interest because a co-owner can transfer their copyright interest. Yes, absolutely. And so if you uh, if you want to look at a deal and, and be like, hey, that, that deal is not good anymore, you, you, that, that, that deal is null and void, you try to interpret the deal as an exclusive license because if someone has co-owners they can't give out an exclusive license and then the contract is yeah. you know uh, there are ways to, to sever it but if you're going to try and say that this is actually a copyright interest that was sent to me uh then it becomes legitimate and that's where the uh that was part of the kit the issue this year in this case. yeah and it's it's like i said a very very fascinating issue that affects probably almost nobody in the quote-unquote real world um but it's one of those cases where you really enter into a lot of gray areas. Like I said, the, the the separation between what is an autobiography versus just facts about someone's life. And also this idea of what is an exclusive license. Sometimes that can actually be pretty difficult um, to define. Exactly. And so it, it intrudes into a lot of those areas. Now, the Ninth Circuit overturned the lower court's decision, basically telling, you know, it's basically saying that, uh, Cabrello here deserves royalties, deserves damages, et cetera, et cetera, for this use of the autobio uh, this use of the biography. So this really could be a big payday for her because this has been, like you said, wildly successful and touring the nation and has been a huge hit. And here it is now. Royalties will be owed to you know the widow of one of the co-authors of an autobiography. It just it seems to come out of nowhere, and that was one. It's one of those cases because, and I'm as guilty of this as anyone. We see so many lawsuits over everything that's successful. You know, every song, every movie, somebody wrote it. Somebody needs royalties from it. It happens. I mean, how many times was you know James Cameron sued over Avatar? Did you we know, lose? I, I think I lost count. Yeah, yeah. Whenever you have a successful piece of of, of art. Well, you really, whenever you have success anywhere, yeah, I, art, etc., you know, you have to be able to fend off um, lawsuits, both legitimate and illegitimate. Um, and, you know, speaking of which, we had a very successful satellite radio yeah. industry in this country, and you know what? They are going to pay up big. <laughs> it's, it's looking increasingly that way, at least, yeah. Uh, Sirius XM... Uh, getting at least a reprieve of sorts, I guess you would say. Uh, right. Because they are getting the chance to appeal, but yeah. It's, so we've it's... spoken uh, on this podcast yeah. in the past about this case. We've spoken about it quite frequently. Yeah, about we should make a drinking turtles. game about it at this point. But um, yeah, <laughs> dive alcohol. Watch us dive alcohol poisoning. poisoning on the every doing time show. Something happens with this case. That's right. The turtles have you know sued, or I'm sorry, it's Flo and Eddie Inc who are formerly of the Turtles, to be exact, uh, have sued Sirius about the uh, public performance of their sound recordings of the you know, various tunes, um, which were made before 1972 and thus not under federal copyright protection. And you 
know, all of a sudden these turtles, these um, former members of the turtles, I'm pretty sure the band is not around anymore, but don't don't quote me on that. I've <laughs> um, said that you know there is protection for these the public performance of these sound recordings under California state law, and so this was uh, upheld, you know, and they they denied summary judgment to. Uh, serious. serious who was saying that there is no protections and so this is moving along to trial uh and what we had here was asking the judge to issue to issue to issue what is a interlocutory appeal which is the appeal of a specific issue before the case is done most people when they think of a lawsuit will think the appeal happens at the end once a jury has seen it or once at least it's been ruled on summary judgment or something exactly so we're having an interlocutory appeal up to interlocutory i have such a hard time with that word saying it yeah yeah interlocutory appeal it's it's not it's not an easy one it's a bit of a tongue twister to to see if you know the california state law does in fact um give a uh public performance protection to sound recording sound recordings made before 1972. Uh, And this is the paragraph of the particular state law which is in question, which I'll I'll read to you. Uh, So, the author of an original work of authorship, you know, work of authorship being any, and then now I'm no longer reading it, uh, so that all of our listeners know that a work of authorship is the fancy way of saying something that qualifies for copyright, so songs are are definitely qualifying for that. So Mm -hmm. let let me repeat without maybe pausing for explanations because it's quite confusing as to what is in the paragraph and what I'm explaining. Yeah, okay. Start over. Uh, so, <laughs> Try this again. The author of an original work of authorship consisting of a sound recording initially fixed prior to February 15th, 1972 has an, this is important, has an exclusive ownership therein until February 15th, 2047 as against all persons except one who independently makes or duplicates another sound recording that does not directly or indirectly recapture the actual sounds fixed in such a recording and I can stop you here because this just carves out an exception that uh, Sirius themselves don't try, aren't trying to get into. So it's this term of an exclusive ownership. So what does that mean? You know, an exclusive ownership, does that mean that you have all the rights that uh, someone has post, uh, post 72 in a copyright? And so that's what they're really fighting about here. And so and- um, go ahead. It's a wonderful example of a legislature being wonderfully vague and kicking the can and figuring it out over to the courts, basically. Yeah, you, you figure it out. You, you, you'll get it. You'll get it. It's fine. But the district court felt that exclusive ownership, you know, pretty soundly included the right to a public performance uh, of a sound recording. And so this is what the um, appeals court is going to look at. And this is going to be the big point. I think once this point is settled, you're going to see a settlement. If, and what? Yeah. And one of the things I find interesting is Sirius, one of SiriusXM's argument is basically, well, of course it doesn't include the right of public performance. Otherwise, someone would have sued over it before now. They don't call it pre-1972 sound recordings for nothing. <laughs> you know, right. They're all like, all this, you know, for 40 years, no one was using this, this language to, to, to claim a public performance right in, pre-7, in pre-72 sound recordings, and all of a sudden, now it is. So, um you know whether that holds legal credence as to what con- the you know the, the 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 people who wrote this piece actually meant. You know I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, and it could just be. I mean, in one argument I would make as well for 40 years, it didn't matter. You know, the the music industry and the business model wasn't dependent upon public performances. 
But as we've gotten the satellite radio and internet streaming and all that, that that rights become a little more important, I think. Right. And it's one, it's one of the so reasons the... why on federal on federal copyright, on the federal side, there's no public performance rights for sound recordings except in the digital realm. That's when it gets more complicated. Yeah, radio play was once seen as the uh, as the uh, compensation. Yeah, it was you know, promotion. It was, basically. The popularity and exposure was something that artists were after. So it really was was not self serving to ever sue someone because you know you're 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 kicking yourself in, you know in the mouse because because of all the uh, you know other money that you end up getting. But now that that money's dried up and this has become such a potential source of income, you you have to really fight for the right and. If you want my personal opinion, you know the district court when they when they evaluated this uses uh, what many courts use when they're trying to interpret the language of a statute, which is just the plain meaning of it. Mm-hmm. And so you know when statutory language is clear and unambiguous, there is quote no need for construction, and courts should not indulge in construction. So giving them their usual and ordinary meaning is kind of the usual go-to. And when 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 I when I read the words. Um, exclusive ownership. You know, I, I, you know, I don't see that as having exceptions. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a "thou shalt not kill" type of statement. It's pretty much there. It is. <laughs> yep. I, um... It doesn't need much else. <laughs> it's it's one of those things, and it it, it kind of um, defies, as you said, further digging. Right. I'm I'm definitely with the court here. I, I think it is, too, and it's interesting because this isn't the only lawsuit that Flo and Eddie, Inc. have filed. They have also have a lawsuit going on in New York, which so far has had similar results, is my under- so far. And they've also got one going on in Florida, and I have no idea what's going on with the Florida one. I haven't heard anything. I, uh, I don't know about that one either. I, I mean, I know it exists, but I guess Florida's just bringing up the rear. <laughs> What you know, else Florida's new? always uh, <laughs> there's always something new? weird going on in Florida. So, uh, Florida. All right, we're first well, at being fiftieth. Um, not at Alabama. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> my apologies to residents of both Florida and Alabama for those states. Uh, you're gonna, uh, you're gonna. <laughs> Please send all the emails you know, uh, to uh, Evan. Chase away some of our some of our viewers and viewers in those states. Ah, uh, yeah, probably. Well, okay, we're moving on to the one of the stories you wanted to sink your teeth into, so Godspeed on this one. The Korean War Memorial, Korean War Memorial, and the, the stamp thereof, I should say. Um, those two things. Right. So, I liked this story because it's in my backyard. That was one of the reasons I really liked it. I live in D.C. I've seen this memorial. I haven't seen the stamp, but I've seen the memorial. And uh, the story is, as you alluded to in the introduction that uh, the federal government reproduced an image of the Korean War Veterans Memorial, which is on the National Mall in one of their stamps. Now, this particular piece was, lo and behold, designed by somebody. And somebody owns the copyright in the, in, in, in the sculpture, and that particular someone is World War II veteran Frank Gaylord. And uh, if you could guess, I don't know if you've read this part, how many of these stamps were sold? No, I did not. You care to take a guess, or should I just jump right in? Um, let's see, stamps. I would uh, several million. I imagine it's in the millions. It's uh, in the millions. It is uh, in the millions. Yeah, it's in the millions. I'm gonna say a hundred million. Just throw out a round number. Very, very astute. Eighty-seven million. Stamps. Ooh, that's that's not bad. <laughs> that's yeah, really good actually. Um, man, 
I'm proud about right. that one. Uh, not only did they do that, but they sold retail goods with the image on it because mm. of its popularity. And they licensed the image to retailers without his permission. So you've got uh, you know, a plethora of different copyright violations here. So um, at first thought, because I'd never really studied uh, copyright violation by governments beyond the fact that they do, in fact, waive sovereign immunity, which is the government's right to say, uh, no matter what we do, so, but there is a, a, a portion of the Copyright Act which says that the, the government does waive their rights in certain patent and copyright uh, situations to uh, dude. And so I was interested to see uh, where, where, uh, where the damages comes into play because do they pay regular damages? Do they pay a different form of damages? Because when I saw the arguments as to what each side thought they were entitled to, they were pretty far apart. Yeah. So the Postal Service says the most we have ever paid is $5,000 for a licensing fee, and that's what we think you're entitled to. You're, we're going to give you $5,000 for our 87 million uh, um, in, sold stamps and our licensing fees, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that's because uh, case law has basically said this. Uh, when it comes to uh, the uh, recovery of damages from the government, an individual is entitled to a reasonable compensation. The recovery of his reasonable and entire compensation as damages. And that's in statutory languages. I'm sorry, statutory language. And Once so again, going back like to that wonderfully vague language that we're going to leave to the courts to figure out. Right. So uh, some courts have looked at that. And uh, and said, uh, well, I mean, there's been all kinds of different interpretations, but uh, what the Postal Service was was saying is that they were using a standard called basically uh, what would the buyer pay as their as their interpretation of what they had to pay. So they're like, hey, we, the most we've ever paid is five thousand dollars. That's all we've had to pay. And um, Gaylord was like, hey, I, I get a ten percent royalty on everything else that I sell. You look at my licensing deals. That's what I do. And so, you know, at $89 million, uh, and the licensing fees, et cetera, he wanted $3 million. So uh, as, as a 10% royalty, basically, of everything they've made. And so the court actually ends up telling them, listen, uh, you're saying that you want what the seller would want. And you're saying what would the, I would want what, what a buyer would pay. Really, if you look at the majority of case law that's looking at this uh, standard, they're, hey, we want to use this, uh, what would a buyer uh, pay and what would a seller accept? It's somewhere in the middle. Willing buyer, willing seller. Right. That's the, uh, that's the statutory language. Yep. Uh, I don't have that in front of me. Thank you, John. And so I actually do have that in my notes. <laughs> Just wanted to get there. <laughs> I hate when I get note blindness. I get it all the time. <laughs> yeah, so note blindness, right? Because you know it actually is a talent to be able to read and speak, et cetera, et cetera. Oh yes. And, and then so, man the show, and then talk. and and so uh, sealing the deal, I think, for the court was that they looked at the postal office, and then their dealings of this image when they were uh, issuing uh, licenses, they were licensing it out at an eight percent royalty rate. So when people came to the post office asking to use this image, which of course they didn't have the right to license out, the, the office themselves were asking for eight percent of their of their sales, 
And so that's kind of that was kind of the coffin, I think, for the postal office here. And 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 what ended up happening was they they uh, they came to a five hundred thousand dollar mark for uh, for at something like eight, eight or seven percent of the uh, royalties and the income for royalties uh, from the income receipt. Which is pretty amusing. The thing you know, the the phrase "hoisted upon your own petard" uh, seems fitting there because of that. Well, let's see. You seem to think it was appropriate to charge eight percent. I think it's appropriate for him to do the same type thing. Exactly. So yeah, it's the it was a very interesting um, case and interesting ruling. And one thing I found somewhat uh, somewhat entertaining was just how controversial the idea of him getting paid by the post office was among some people like oh he was paid to create it and it's been put up and you know he got his money and that's the end of it eh, it doesn't really work that way with copyright you know public art still has a copyright usually and therefore you can infringe it you know uh, i had actually seen quite a few job postings um for actually a long time now, the U.S. Postal Service was looking for a copyright and trademark attorney, and now I guess I you know why. You know, because uh, they, they reproduce a lot of images. <laughs> and I guess the last guy didn't tell them that you kind of need to pay the, the, the man who designed the sculptor. So. Yes, we now know why there is an opening in that particular position, Evan. Yeah. Maybe you should apply. I'm actually, uh, since I'm not a U.S. citizen, I actually cannot uh, work uh, for the U.S. Postal Office. Oh, that's right. You know, U.S. Postal Office and federal government, if you'd hired this Canadian gentleman here, he might have saved you $540,000. We need a constitutional amendment. Just throw, I don't care. Okay? There's my tax dollars on the, well, it's not the tax dollars, it's the Postal Service. I'm trying to think of a way to get outraged here, and you're not helping. You're not helping my fake outrage at all. Rabble, rabble, rabble. Sorry. Oh, how dare you. I feel like a mega upload programmer right now. Um, well, speaking of which, you want to you cue us into the Mega yeah. Upload story? <clears throat> yeah, Mega Upload. A lot's been going on in that case in our absentia. Um, the, the biggest development has been that the U.S. government has secured its first guilty plea in this case. Now, remember, uh, we talk all the time about Kim.com, Kim.com, Kim.com. But there's actually like a bunch of people working at Mega Upload at the time it was shut down. It was not just him yeah. literally running all the servers somewhere in a basement. Who knew? The evil team, you know. There was, there's all, you know, there's Doctor Evil, then there's yeah. number two through seven, and number two through you know whatever number they need. Well, one of those various lower numbers in this organization, um, he was uh, for the long for three years uh, fighting extradition in the Netherlands. His name and uh, God help me, I'm so gonna botch this. And Andrus Nam, Andrus Nam, Andrus Nam. I'm just uh, going to say sure, because I will also botch it. <laughs> but, I, I never, I, I need to bring Ellie in here. I don't do Dutch names. Because um, <laughs> he's from the Netherlands. He was fighting extradition and apparently has decided to give up. He kind of surprised everyone by pretty much just hopping on a plane and coming to the United States when there was a warrant out for his arrest. Um, he arrived, was arrested, not a surprise, quickly pleaded guilty, and has uh, since been sentenced to one year. I believe and, he also fought his extradition. He was just kind of the first domino. Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. He was fought, he fought it for three years. He fought it for a long time. He just, I, for whatever reason, changed his mind about continuing to fight it, whether it was money, whether it was just a desire to get it over. I don't know, but he uh, he, he stopped fighting. Now, others in the uh, mega conspiracy, as it's called, quote-unquote, and I just 
find that to be an absolutely joyful name for some reason. It sounds so happy and so sinister at the same time. The mega conspiracy. It's like something a six-year-old would it's invent. A, it's 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 a it's a great branding <laughs> effort, is. in my opinion. You know, mega upload, and everyone's being you know accused of conspiracy. So mega conspiracy. Yeah, using the t- turning the whole mega branding in and on in on itself. Um, quick side note: I don't know if you saw this, and and this is uh, totally unrelated to the case. But we had once discussed what we thought the Aereo brand would be worth. Yeah. After you know everything fell down, I did see the other day that it was yep. sold. Did you? Yeah, did you, sold for I think it was like that? one million dollars, wasn't it? Yeah, between one to two million dollars. So yeah, they didn't get an exact. Sounds like figure. a lot of money, but okay. you know when you look at the the hundreds of millions of dollars on either sides, uh, either side, you know this this is a small. Well, 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 while we're touching on Aereo, um, are you predicting a uh, Napster-type uh, legitimate comeback, or do you think they're just going to do something else with it? I mean, TiVo bought it, um, so they could do like their own Aereo-like service, but I, I'm really trying to figure out what they're going to do with it, or maybe they just kind of have it in their back pocket for when they need it. Yeah, you know, I think uh, obviously someone's going to try something with it, because otherwise they wouldn't have purchased it. But whether that'll be successful... Uh, well, yeah, we all know I what happened when they tried to relaunch Napster. It, it didn't go so well as a legitimate service. There's not a good track record of this. Um, but yeah, I mean, they they must have felt it was worth a one to two million dollar gamble. Yep. And honestly, to a company of TiVo size, it probably was. You know. Uh, if, if I recall correctly, the Napster tried to relaunch, and then they eventually got bought out right yeah they, they they never got a whole lot of traction they got bought out a few times and eventually just kind of went with a whimper right so i think you'll probably see the same thing because i don't think Ariel had a quarter of the brand recognition amongst the consumers that napster had yeah so. except for the fact you know um what is now ivy um tv was at one point named Ariel killer because that is the best way to brand your company using your competition's name plus the word killer uh- well, I, I would have to disagree <laughs> because you'll probably get sued, and that's not they exactly uh, the best model for a startup is to jump right into litigation. Um, <laughs> oh, probably uh, not. But sorry, I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you. I, you know, my two cents on, on this case is that um, there's a certain uh, a game theory into being the first one to surrender to uh, extradition charges <laughs> because you're going to be the guy that can make the plea deal, yeah. that can uh, be the witness in the next six cases, especially if you're a relatively small fish, which this guy is if you only got a year. Um, he's he's going to be the guy who can make the plea deal and turn around and, uh, and save his own ass. So yeah. I think that's what happened here. They literally call that the prisoner's dilemma, and I guess now it is truly literal in this case. Right. But... Um... So we will see what comes of that. Now, Kim.com, of course, has gone on Twitter and elsewhere saying that it will have no impact. And if he's testifying truthfully, there's nothing that he has on him or anyone else. But I don't think I don't think he would have returned and I don't think he would have gotten the sentence he did if he did not have something of importance to offer at the same time. Agreed. So something seems amiss there with Mr.com's, which is such a weird thing to say, Mr.com's claims. But I guess we will find out uh, come June, because that is when the hearing on Kim.com's extradition is supposed to take place. So, 
We have a while to talk about APIs and maybe a while to talk about Kim.com. Who knows? <laughs> Probably not. We'll probably be talking about him before we talk about APIs again. <laughs> Come yeah, back to a well, show well, drinking game. <laughs> yeah, well, I think eventually, I mean, it's going to be before the court, so. Yeah. What choice will we have but to uh, bring in a special guest? Yeah, to exactly. Talk about APIs, what they do. How they were copied, and what way they were copied, why they are essential to the functioning of the internet, and in what way they can remain essential to the functioning of the internet, even if uh, uh, they essentially become copyrighted and lost to the state. I'm not sure if it is at stake. I don't think it's quite one side or the other. I don't. Then that's why is. I'm not talking about it. You know, <laughs> that's it. That we're done talking about it. Now let's talk about some blurred line stuff. What do you say? Um, yes. So blurred lines. Uh, Robin Thicke. Let me, let me get back to my uh, show notes here for a second. <laughs> right. Uh, Sorry. Screwing him up all over, everyone. It's just, this is what I do. I screw up Evan Shera's for an hour. That's what the podcast basically is. You, you know why You know why I uh, I wasn't on my show notes? It's because I'd actually, like I was mentioning to you before the show, I was preparing uh, a, a quasi side note, which is the medley that they played in court. Because last week we talked about how, for you know certain reasons, for very complex legal reasons, you couldn't play the actual song because yeah, basically um, Marvin Gaye State does not hold the copyright to the recording. That's apparently I found out it was recently re- recently that's held by Motown Records holds that. So um, they you only have to hold end the, up. Sorry, go ahead. They only have copyright in the compositions. The main reason they have to stick to the paper, so to speak. Right. So how does but but how does a jury look at a paper and be like, okay, no, I can't read music, so I'll go home. So Considering I'm pretty sure more up. people read Greek than read music proficiently, so. The, Right, so they have to end up what what they agreed on, or what the judge ended up asking, was to play these uh, MIDI electronic versions of what is in the actual compositions. And Remember MIDI's? So, this is gonna be '90s. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like a '90s version, and I had actually uh, had those URLs prepared. Okay. Uh, but for some reason, the uh, the very end of the URL, which is a bunch of numbers, I think, for each one of these this website's articles. The last few numbers didn't end up copying with the URL, so it was opening a story about Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore's divorce. To me, I couldn't figure out why. I was like, no, that's not, that is not what I need right now. And so uh, I was just uh, quickly uh, getting, getting the correct URL uh, to, uh, so that we could play to our uh, listeners what the jury is going to be hearing. And it's really staggeringly different. Than yeah, because... We both know Got to Give It Up is that soulful, jivey you know, song, and I'm pretty sure if it's a MIDI-type thing, it's going to be quite annoying, actually, is my prediction. I always found MIDI music really irritating to listen to. Well, it's not, uh, it's certainly not the same quality as the no. actual song. No one's ever going to confuse it for a substitute for the real thing. Right, so the jury ends up having to actually compare these two songs so if you want to indulge i think maybe we could play these for uh, okay go for it so here is what the jury will hear when they are going to listen or what they i think this already happens what they'll uh what they heard when oh i'm sorry it's next week so this is what they will hear when they are listening to what exactly marvin gay's composition is
that's the first half of the song, and you know, if you know the song, you know that that distinctive uh, done, done, yeah, yeah, cowbell-ish type. Um, I don't know exactly what it is like a bell of some sort is missing, uh, and that's one of the things that sounds so similar in the two songs. Now here's here's borderlines. What they'll what, what they'll hear. If you can't hear what I'm trying to say, if you can't read from the same page, maybe I'm wow. wow, that is, that is so, so different. different. It's like, like nine layers removed from each song. So it's kind of weird. So that is what they will be hearing. Uh, and but I've got to say, even with just that, you can hear some pretty sharp similarities no question. too. At the same time, no question, there are set, there mean, are certainly some sharp. That doom 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 at the beginning in particular is still very distinctive on both. But yeah, I don't know if that makes rises to the level of copyright infringement. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying you can hear similarities. Similarity does not equal copyright infringement. It's one of the points of this whole legal battle. Right, and I need to correct myself one more time. It actually did already happen. I think the, uh, the NetSuite uh, referred to the original date of this article, which speaks to how long it's been since we've uh, actually uh, yeah, since uh, we've casted. Uh, so this has already happened, which is where the story that we were going to talk about today came from, is that part of uh, the defense's testimony involved uh, the man himself, Robin Thicke, doing a medley in front of the jury uh, in the style of that four-chord band that I think went viral a few, uh, mm-hmm. a few months ago. Uh, that's the act. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. That is the um, oh crud! It's the axis. Yeah, the of axis awesome. of awesome had that four chord song to show that, you know, ma- uh, music is essentially math, and there's a certain finite amount of combinations. And when you look at the majority of mainstream music, you can put them really uh together. And so Thick played, uh, and this is a quote, a medley of U 2s with or without you, Bob Marley's No Woman No Cry. Alphaville's Forever Young. Weren't those all in the Axis of Awesome? Uh, pa- I'm sorry. I, I don't those... know. Which is that—that's another thought. It's like maybe his his court performance was a you know copyright violation of their uh, of their cover if they no. owned them. Anyways, and it would be fair use, of course, if you're in a court of law, you know, trying to prove a point. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, and it wasn't done. Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror and the Beatles' Let It Be, just to demonstrate how easy uh, it is to view any song as similar to another. So what he's trying to say, and this is a, I think a legitimate point, is that. Uh, when it comes to music, they've really okay. got to be extremely close. The scope of copyright in a music is thin um, because, oh, yeah. you know, when you have the mathematical base of music, you really have to have very exact reproductions in order to find uh, copyright violations. Though that's, the, that's what they're trying to say. Okay. Real fast, what was the second song that he played the uh, medley no, of? No Cry. No, okay. Uh, with first or without you, by you too. Misheard. Okay, um, you two and Bob Marley there. With or without you and No Woman No Cry were both in the Axis Awesome four chord songs. Uh, Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror was not though. So we can call it uh, Robin Thicke's uh, Axis of Awesome defense uh, of awesome moment. <laughs> And you see, here's the thing. I'm torn on which joke to make here. Because on one hand, hey, the jurors got a free Robin Thicke concert. On the other hand, whoa, the jurors had to sit through a Robin Thicke concert. I think concert. he got a good voice. I, you know, I think he went in there and charmed them. He was like, let me sing, let me sing a, a few songs for you, you know? 
Uh, hopefully, uh, yeah. he's yeah. a charming dude. If he was open for the ladies out. in the crowd, you know, would uh, mm-hmm. you know have a different reason coming back uh, to to of, of you know no uh, no infringement. Um, you know, he is a charming dude. There's no doubt about that. But it's um, it's, but yeah. So uh, apparently he was pulling um actual pages from the Axis of Awesome on that one. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he, which just makes it even funnier yeah, in a way. Yeah. Also walked back a number of comments he had made, you know, over the course of a few years as a uh, celebrity. You know, you get interviewed and you always want to say, you know, oh, I'm, you know, here Marvin Gaye is one of my idols, you know, which I'm sure is true. I don't, you know, he's trying. He walked him back saying that he was high and drunk when he said all these things, uh, which I thought was pretty disingenuous, even if he was high and drunk, to say that Marvin Gaye wasn't one of his inspirations. I mean, if you're a musician. With a soul, soulful musician, is. Marvin Gaye is, is one of your inspirations if you do the style of music that Robin Thicke does. And so I think that might uh, have him uh, – I think that loses – that makes him lose a little bit of credibility, credibility in my eyes if I was a juror for, for someone to say that. Oh, like, oh, I didn't really mean that. Um, I totally hate Marvin Gaye. He's totally loser and he yeah. sucks. Marvin Gaye. Yeah. By the way, you're a guitarist, am, correct? Yeah. What are the four chords of the four chord song? Uh, that's a good question. Hmm. Um, if I had to guess. Do you remember? I've got it in front of me. I wouldn't know what okay, I've got in front of me. Front of me uh, okay, so do you want me to give them to you in order? Yes. Um, I, I mean, I don't know. If I had to guess what four chords are in most songs, I would say C, mm-hmm. G, D. Am I three or four? Um, you're, I, I don't know about the. Uh, let's see. According to this site, the four chord songs are A, B minor, D, and G. Yeah, I, you know, I don't like to get That's my guitar here. I could be. T- I could be on the wrong side here. I, could, I, I know nothing. Well, here's about the thing: is that this site could be it, totally when wrong it comes to um, musical theory, um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be those chords. Because no, yeah. it just matters how kind of different or how far away they are from each other on the musical scale. Because it's essentially an infinite loop of, 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 of this. It, you know, if you go up a guitar fret, you know, the, the very top string of a regular guitar will be an E. And then the next one is an F. Then it's an F sharp. Yeah. Then it's a G. Then it's a G sharp. Then it's, a, um, then it's an A. And then it's a, an A sharp. And then it's a B. And then it's a C. And then it's a sharp and then it is a d and then it is a d sharp and then we're back to e so you know those are artificial names Duh. you know you're giving them letters it could just be one two three chord one two three four five six seven eight nine ten and so if you, you play you know notes you know two four eight ten two four eight ten it'll sound the same as if you if you play chord Three five seven nine one three five seven nine one. So it's this yeah. it's this mathematical progression rather than any sort of like actual identity for the chord. It's it, you know it becomes how high or how low they are. So um, yeah, you can play sense. the four chord song in any but, in any key. You know. But is a doe really a deer, a female deer, or and Ray a drop of golden sun? <laughs> Yeah, was that Latin? Is that Latin? Are those the Latin words? That was sound okay. of music. Um, but I, I, yeah, the, the, I'm referencing uh, I the sound referencing of music. maybe like the actual no uh, meaning of the words when they were originally. Uh, okay. No. <laughs> it's been sound of music's been big this week. I've never seen. I've never seen sound attention. of music. It's some kind of anniversary. Confession time. I don't know. It's some kind of anniversary going on, but yeah. 
All right. Well, we got to get talking about uh, while we're on the subject of music, music licensing, and yeah, this is interesting. Uh, simplifying and streamlining music licensing. If you've learned anything from this podcast already, you probably figured out music licensing kind of sucks. Um, it kind of sucks in a big way because you have two separate copyrights in every song. You have the copyright in the composition, aka what was written on the paper, Marvin Gaye Estate. And the actual recording, if it was post-1972 right. at least. You there are many, that. many issues, then, and these were all studied, and these, this report, as you can imagine, is 250 pages long as to what some potential problems <laughs> are and what some potential solutions light are. Light reading, light reading. Just go, go, go curl up with a Kindle. So, uh, the Copyright Office released this report, and I guess we could go over some of the highlights of it. Um, you know... Um, Let's see. Uh, they want a more equal footing for sound recordings and musical work, which is something you mentioned, uh, at least especially yeah. in the digital realm, because the office believes that sound recordings and the underlying musical work should stand on more of an equal footing, uh, and that an alternative free market approach would give copyright owners an opt-out right to withdraw specific categories of rights from government oversight in key areas where sound recording owners uh, enjoy benefits, uh, where the composition writers may not. So if you song and then someone else did the sound recording you don't have as many rights in when someone uses that sound recording which uh essentially you know is uh, a derivative work of your uh and and that looks directly at what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago about ascap and bmi and specifically how those are blanket licenses because of those consent decrees it's all or nothing you're either all in or all out this would give supposedly saying well okay in these areas you can withdraw selectively because, like they said, um, sound rec- the sound recordings and the, the actual artist have that option. So, and uh, this also has something to do with something we were talking about a little while ago with the willing buyer or willing seller standard. The uh, rate setting for webcasters like Pandora is is used with a willing buyer standard and so they have suggested that it should be um, a willing buyer willing seller standard which would probably equal a lot more money for uh you know artists and songwriters yeah um one thing i did find interesting is they're looking at bundling mechanical and performance rights i thought that was kind of interesting because um, right now there are mechanical rights, which I'm trying to uh, trying to figure out how to explain mechanical rights right now. It's always the toughest one for me to explain. Um, you care to help me on no, this one? Uh, there, um, there's nope. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. What were you saying? Um, I I think um, the the bundling of mechanical rights with performance rights uh, is going to be one of the things that will happen. Uh, you know, it's. I think it's supported by industry yeah. stakeholders, and uh, basically, what it ends up doing is allows performance rights organizations and uh, other entities to become music rights organizations instead of being two different ones. Yeah. Uh, as for the subtleties between the two, um, I'll have to. I'll have to pass on that one <laughs> as well. It's 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 difficult yeah. to explain. Well, I, I mean, and yeah. the, I'll touch on it at least briefly. Basically, it is the idea. It's the license to sort of redo the work in some way um, in these cases. And it deals with musical recording specifically. So it's kind of like a, we might think of it a little bit like a mashup license. Could, could be a mashup, could be a cover. Kind of, exactly. It's, 
It, it's in that uh, CC. If you're thinking about Creative Commons, it'd be like the um, the uh, the sh it'd be the um, it'd be the derivative works license there, like, kind of. Kind of. Uh. <laughs> Ish. It, it's that's why it's so tough. There's not really much of anything you know like it. Without like doing a whole hour long episode on mechanical licensing, God help me if we ever seriously yeah. do that. I'll we'll talk about APIs, APIs for an hour before I talk so. about mechanical licenses. Uh, so uh, one of the other things they do is 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 they want to fully federalize pre seventy two recordings. Uh, Thank you, you know, God. Calm. How are you going to do it? They never answer how they're going to do it though. They just say they want to do it. They don't really give a lot of detail on how, is my understanding. Well, I though. think uh, from what I'm reading, from what I read, they want to do. Uh, just bring them within federal law with the same rights, exceptions, and limitations as the more recently created sound recordings. So, uh, that's pretty cool. but but then you have the issue of registrations, the problem, and that's the can that keeps getting kicked down the road. Is because in the U.S. right now, if you do not have a copyright office registration, you lack a lot of the benefits of copyright protection. You work, you don't lack copyright protection, but you lack the ability to file a lawsuit, collect the maximum damages, etc. Most pre-1972 sound recordings aren't registered because why would they be? Yep. Uh, That's my, stupid. My personal favorite is the uh, creation of incentives to create an authoritative public database because when you lost the registration standard in order to, uh, to gain copyright, you know, you lost this ability to have this database where people can go to find who owns your song. If you, if you find something you really like and you don't know who to pay, I feel like there's money. There's there's, there's money that's being lost, and so the office believes that. Uh, well, first of all, any solution to the music data problem should be built by private actors because, let's be honest, uh, who builds the best, you know, tech uh, infrastructure? It's the private sector. It's it's not the government. <laughs> Pro tip: It's not the copyright office. Especially. Well, the copyright office. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, say that they couldn't do it. They just don't have the money to do anything. Well, the, that and, the, and the, really, it's not that they're uh, unintelligent people, but I mean, they really are severely underfunded. Is the problem? It's the, it's ninety five percent of their issue is funding right now. I mean, their electronic copyright office system was out of date when it was launched in two thousand seven. It hasn't seen any updates since. Not any significant ones, and if I don't know if you've checked out their database of DMCA agents of, for notifying copyright infringement, it's basically an alphabetic list of scanned PDFs. <laughs> so, I don't want that to be the model for the database for this. So yeah, I think they've got a point to go that. Sure. Way. Yeah. So on this <laughs> uh, for this report, I, I I haven't had the chance to dive into it. You know. Uh, well, no one has. It's 250 pages. But uh, I look forward to maybe talking about this a little bit next time. Uh, if we can take yeah. a, an area or two, especially in the mechanical licensing area, because uh, yeah, like I said, it, it's it's complex, but it's very interesting. And uh, once I read it, yeah, and more about it, and uh, maybe we can jump back into some of some of these areas and the reaction to some of these. Uh, yeah, proposals. Well, we should. We definitely should. We'll, well, maybe we'll talk about that after we uh, sign off. But, I mean, like I said, the main thing is right now with music licensing, you have two different copyrights, and each copyright has three different sets of main licenses you can obtain for that. And in some cases, they're all controlled by different people. So, yeah, it can be all a right. mess. Let's, let's move on to the most uh, interesting. Left, left shark, left, <laughs> yeah, left shark, left shark. Oh, man, this was epic. Did you actually see this live when Did it you, happened? I don't know if we're friends on Facebook, but... If uh, if you go back to uh, February February second, I'm 
not American. I don't know the date of the Super Bowl. But uh, you go back to the Super Bowl and you look at my Facebook status. I had a, a status confirming that I was Left Shark. And this was before it blew up. Yes, I, did, I do that. remember so, that. So I was I on the, the Left Shark hype train we must from be the start. Friends. So I knew that as soon as that thing wasn't, wasn't doing it correctly, that, that, that social media was going to just jump all over it. Um, the story here is that a gentleman decided to 3D print a number of different Left Shark items, costumes, etc. And, of course, he was sent a cease and desist letters from Katy Perry's lawyers. And, uh, Which says you know, all kinds did, of you, did you get down <laughs> to see what firm she's represented by? Yeah, um, she is represented by Greenberg Troy. Greenberg Troy at the top, yeah. of course. I mean, but yeah. so this, so it's an intimidating letter to get. You know, Greenberg Troy is serious yeah. business, and the well, response. Katy Perry is serious business. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, you know. Um, but you know, you have some artists like uh, like Jack White actually still is represented by uh, a solo practitioner, so. You have some artists who uh, hold on to, let's say, this, the smaller people that kind of were with them from the start. Uh, but uh, they like to call her KP. She's uh, got the big boys on her uh, on her side. Well, and any any artist with the funding, whether it's a solo practitioner or not, will be able to mount a rousing defense or attack on just about anything right, so, they need so to. So there's no there's no real attack yet, there's no lawsuit, it's a cease and desist letter because I'm sure she, yeah. that it doesn't really make sense to sue this guy because I don't think he made that much money, although we don't know yet because one of the things they demanded for his letter is accounting. But uh, they sent this letter asking for uh, a number of things, you know, obviously cease doing it, uh, an accounting of all your money, uh, you know, turn over all your merchandise, you know, confirm in writing that you're gonna uh, do everything that we demand to you, et cetera, et cetera. So this, this gentleman uh, was fortunate enough to, uh, first of all, complete a crowdfunding a mini campaign to, to raise some money. On GoFundMe. Yep. And raised raise $500. $500. Uh, although I don't know why he needed that exactly because I believe the, his counsel is representing him pro bono. He has a, a New York uh, – an NYU law professor representing him who, who wrote a really, really awesome letter. Uh Oh yeah, this is this goes yeah. down in history. For yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, right? This is epic. Um, and yeah. so, uh, okay, oh, we can actually get it to to it right now. And so, I'll get to some of the the legal points before we get to the, some of the, uh, I guess, more funny the, the comedic points. Is that he writes back and he's like, "Well, here's here's I have a few concerns with your letter, and it's this very academic response, right? Because normally you're you want to play ball, but this guy's like, you know what? I'm really interested in hearing your legal arguments. Tell me why you think you own a copyright, because you know, as far as I know, most courts have refused to grant copyright in a costume, you know, because the clothing and utilitarian article uh, issue uh, comes up. So tell me why you think you have a copyright. That's my That, that was his first uh, request. He's like, we're not going to do anything until you, you give us why you think you, you have a copyright in this in this thing. Your and legal theory. Legal theory. <laughs> you know, which is an interesting request. Um, and the second one is that uh, he... he yeah, and this is my first thought as well when I first saw the, the, the cease and desist letter. He's like, I'm not sure you uh, you own a copyright even if one exists because wouldn't the NFL own this copyright? You're telling me that you kept intellectual property and deal with the Super Bowl? I find that hard to believe, and this is essentially what he's saying. Uh, not only because mm-hmm. you know anyone who just 
as any concept of a business relationship would think that when it came to the balance of power in negotiations between Katy Perry and the NFL, the NFL would probably want to keep IP rights. Um, so, But other than that, Katy Perry herself in interviews said words like, I relinquished control, alluding to this uh, lack of a balance of power that, you know, really the NFL is going to get what it's going to get. And so he... You want to perform halftime of the Super Bowl, you're giving up a lot along exactly. the way. Exactly, and I think... <laughs> I don't know if it was you who mentioned this to me the other week that people actually pay to perform because of the exposure to yeah. 80 million people rather than the other way around. So, yeah, imagine that pay to perform, get upstaged by an uncoordinated shark. It's got to suck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sorry. You know, and, and then out of my favorite part, I'm sure, you know, I can give you the honors if you want as to what you think my favorite part of the letter was. Uh, no, go ahead. Take it. So, You've been doing you so know, good. Uh, this is the final paragraph. I'll end my letter mm -hmm. with a very simple request. Just drop this thing. My client wants to get back to his business. And he, and I bracket, and I'd wager pretty much everyone else, would be grateful if you'd just back off. Going ahead with these very uh, dubious, dubious copyright claims will not benefit Katy Perry. But if you're determined to press on, Please do respond to my legal questions, and we can try to work it out from there. Best regards, Chris. <laughs> yeah, that's a, usually uh, responses to cease and desist letters. Even even though it's not technically a legal letter, quote unquote, it's not like a motion or anything like that. It's not sent to a court. Usually, it's still very formal, very it's, it's legalese. It's, it's a posturing, you know. It's a you know for yeah. an eventual settlement or. Uh, or or, or, or potential litigation, right? Uh, you know, you're, you're posturing, and and this was this was a very yeah. academic letter. It's that, you know, you know. Tell us about your legal theories. I guess if you have a good legal theory, we'll stop. Sure. I, I, someone said, I don't remember who it was, but someone said that he basically talked to the uh, the filing the the complaining attorney as if he had raised his hands in one of his classes. Really, Mister, you know. I can't read it's that. It's the Socratic method, name. which is the you know the method employed in law school, which is that you know you answer a question with a question. And this is what he's done. He's, yeah. he's probably done it forever. He's like, oh, what do you think the legal liability liability is? Well, what do you think the theory of copyright that's going to stand in court for a costume is? And so I guess we'll see what their response uh, is going to be. Yeah, I have not heard. We, this article we're referencing was dated February 9th, showing how long it's been. And there, I don't think there's been a response to the response yet. And I suspect we probably won't hear one right now because it's pretty crazy, you know, to think about this. And I don't, the arguments never really made much sense to me. It, it seemed to be a huge stretch. It, it just really seemed crazy and like i said the the, the copyrightability of um of a, of a costume by itself is enough and then the idea that wouldn't it either go to the nfl or at very least the person who designed the costume if there is one you know are you saying you somehow katie perry landed the copyright and what would had to have been an interesting string of transfers from the person who designed it just throwing that out <laughs> it's kind of crazy 
But yeah, it seemed like a stretch. It seemed like an attempt to overcapitalize on a meme at the time. And the meme is dead now, effectively. We were talking about it so late. I don't even know if kids are going to remember Left yeah, Shark. Yeah, just like every other fad, you know. The copyright issue. Mm, exactly. Obviously, like I alluded to before, uh, is a problem because of their ability to be functional and generally uh, the functional elements of costume uh, or of anything really are not copyrightable. And this gets into a very uh, interesting area. Uh, you know, and what is essentially aesthetic, what is functional, uh, where do you draw the line? Uh... And, and costume sometimes does touch on the trademark. You can deal with trademark characters. You deal with this every Halloween, like Freddy and Jason and so forth, too. They are copyright characters, and there is a derivative work there, but there's also a trademark element of it, right, too, sometimes. But I don't think there's a trademark in Left Shark that I'm aware of, if well, there is. Well, then again, I'm sure will launch a line of of left shark this and left shark left that. shark it, perfume you know, it all depends on how she structures her business left shark dance yeah, exactly. video uh, <laughs> you, you can be a trademark because well it wouldn't be a trademark uh, you know it would be a design mark uh, unless yeah. they use the words left shark which would then be the trademark but uh, since we're talking about a costume you know if you use the the, you know, the left shark uh, image as the uh, yeah, indication of source it becomes yeah. a trademark and then uh you can even put things in blue and white and have a trade dress. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, since this is a copyright 2.0 show, I will uh, quell, I will quell well, the heresy of, of trademark talk. Well, well, it's always fun to have a little bit because, you know, it's it's always fun to, to see how the other side lives for a little bit. And remember that all intellectual property is pretty much equally screwed up. Except patent. No one wants to do patent. Oh, patent is... Uh... <laughs> I'm joking. You have, I think you've got you got to be a science guy to do patent, and I just never was a, a science guy. Yeah. You re- really have a passion for uh, either engineering. It, it takes a very special kind of person to become a patent attorney. It's very lucrative, but it takes a very special kind of person. Yeah, to it get is. Into it's, it. it is very lucrative. A lot of my uh, colleagues who are in uh, patent law who have the science background are, are you know, experiencing tremendous success. I'm, I'm very happy for them. And then, and then, like I said, very lucrative, but. Very, very, very unique type of person goes into it. Well, speaking of, in our last story, while we're talking about unusual legal arguments, I think I screwed up the show notes by putting this last. I think Left Shark was supposed to be last, but you know what? Screw it. We're coming back and getting it. Pandora and its slap argument. Wow. I mean... Yeah, this one... Um, I don't know where to start it, with this it, Well, one. it's a pretty, pretty complicated attempt of, of having the burden shift... On, onto the defendant about proving their their likelihood of success. Um, oh, sorry, onto the plaintiff uh, because uh, they're the defendant in the yeah. case. So uh, the anti-slap is uh, a California statute intended to protect the exercise of the First Amendment uh, against burdens imposed uh, to it by legal claims. So this... Uh, Concept originated. By the way, SLAP stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation, SLAP. Right, so when someone is suing you as the way to shut you up, the anti SLAP comes into play. And so uh, this is a special type of uh, defense to saying that you're trying to get me to either not say something, and this is usually a political thing, which is, you know. Hey, I'm mm-hmm. going to sue you for defamation because you said that I would be a bad uh, governor. Obviously, it would have to be more than that because that's not defamation. But if you kind of have a, a you know a gray area defamatory statement, 
um, made, and then you're being sued for that, you're going to say, hey, listen, you know, this, is, this isn't about the defamation. You know, and this is about you trying to shut me up in a gov- in, in the governor's race. So I'm going to use this anti-slap uh, provision to, to, to really shift the burden to you um, to, to show why I made a defamatory uh, a statement. So the, 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 the first step is, uh, you know, does this evolve the First Amendment? And I think the radio is a pretty clear yeah, First Amendment, although it's uh, unconventional. Yeah, we don't talk about slap much in copyright because a it's a California thing, it's state law, and as we know, um, copyright typically is federal unless, of course, we're talking about pre nineteen seventy two sound recordings, which is an extension of the Turtles lawsuit, which is why I'm reasonably sure I screwed up the, sh- the show notes. Um, but anyways, um, the thing about it is it's very unusual because usually you. Even though people talk about copyright and the First Amendment together all the time, the boundaries between those two have been pretty well defined over the years. You know what I mean? Right. They're uh, yeah. they come they There's go together. Copyright helps and all the First these Amendment. Other First Amendment helps copyright, and then when they do end up coming together, yeah. it's a big deal, right? You see, uh, yeah, you know, the Supreme Court case and whether the copyright could be extended another twenty years, uh, whether that was a violation of the First Amendment in itself. Exactly. Um, and then fair use is built in as a First Amendment protection, so that's where you usually see the interaction play out. And so someone says that I have a right to do this, this is a fair use. And so uh, and so seeing this from a different angle uh, in the anti-slap area, it was, you know, like I said, it, it makes sense, I guess, but it's, a, it's novel. But, but basically Pandora is saying we have a First Amendment right to play this music, and by suing us, you are making – and the thing about the anti-slap is it's supposed to be a way to kind of short-circuit those frivolous lawsuits designed to scare people into silence. It's supposed to be a way – it's like a even earlier than a summary judgment type thing, even quicker than that. And it's also supposed to shift, I believe, legal costs Yeah, too. and with Sirius losing their lawsuit, this, I don't think this passes like the – No, this doesn't pass any slap standard I'm aware of because they've already – They've already been successful once with these exact set of arguments. This, this doesn't pass like the first glance test, you know. At, no. You, this, Dan. There's a you, we have a First Amendment right to play your song without compensating yeah. you. Um, I, you know, I guess, <laughs> you know, the there is some credence in the fact that maybe this right is expanded because you didn't sue us for forty years. That this, I don't, I don't know what they're trying to say. I'm like trying to help them here, you know that. <laughs> Because, yeah, because this work. right has, has existed for, for 40 years, that all of a sudden we've gained a First Amendment right to play your song? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not feeling it either. I, I tried from a lot of different angles to see it. I didn't. I failed. I gave up. I've moved on with my life, and I have had cake and and, and Thin Mints because um, it's Girl Scout cookie season. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so I just—it's it, one of those stories that was seems too outrageous to be true, and yeah, it got beat down, big shock, and now I think Pandora is kind of in the same boat that uh, Sirius XM is in, and literally because I think it's even like the same judge. Yeah, well, <laughs> isn't it? I actually I don't know that, but I just wanted to be super clear to the listeners that uh, they they did pass the first part of the test, you know uh, the. Radio broadcasting of the turtles is a First okay, Amendment yeah. activity, uh, but yeah. the, the the second part uh, failed. Whether they can, uh, th- there's going to be a likelihood of success here. 
Yeah. And there is definitely some likelihood of success because, surprise, um, they've already won. You know, they've already got rulings in their favor in another case. It's almost identical as far as the relevant facts. So, high, 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 high likely of success um, is what I would say the court's looking at. And that's the thing is... This was not a lawsuit designed to shut up Pandora's First Amendment right to play other people's music without payment. This was a lawsuit about royalties, fairly ho-hum, and just a weird weird application of slap to me. I think they had to know going into slap was yeah, a long shot. I think so, shot. too. I mean, it, like I said, it's a really novel argument to say that because, you know, no one had been paying for it uh, for a while that this, this, despite the victory, you know, on the serious side that says, yes, there is a public performance right. That all of a sudden that became a First mm -hmm. Amendment, an unacceptable First Amendment violation. Yeah, and that, that seems a stretch to me. It, they had to know it was a Hail Mary play, and it, it failed as most legal Hail Marys do. All right, well, uh, it was a pleasure talking hey, to you no, again. Thanks for trying. Yeah, it's been great talking. Uh, anything else you want to add? Any final thoughts? Uh, you know, not too much. You know, as always, nothing I've said here is legal advice. It's just my general commentary. And oh, yeah, yeah. That's in the yeah. intro, too, but yes. <laughs> and no sometimes uninformed legal advice, commentary. No commentary. Yeah. But, uh,. Yeah, I had a good time talking, yeah. and uh, and hopefully get back get on back track. We gotta we gotta make an effort to get back on track with these. Um, but on that note, everyone, my name is Jonathan Bailey. I am from the website Plagiarism Today. Username Plagiarism Day at all the things: Twitter, Facebook, Google Plus, LinkedIn, Instagram. Probably I don't know uh, anywhere else you can think. of. Pinterest. I don't know if I have a Pinterest. Maybe I should. Uh, you could have mm -hmm. a Pinterest. And I think Pinterest is you actually just pin things that are important. Popping items, etc. I have no idea. I've never actually used Pinterest, I don't believe. Except maybe to research an article at some point. I don't think I've actually used Pinterest. I'm realizing that. I have no idea what it <laughs> really is. And this podcast is brought to you by... By Pinterest. Pinterest. <laughs> All right, guys, and I'm uh, Evan Sherris, and uh, we'll see you guys next time. Thanks a lot. Talk to you then. We would like to give a very special thank you to Pit X for contributing the copyright 2.0 show theme song entitled Me Boo. It is available under the Creative Commons by Attribution License and can be found at ccmixter.org by searching for the word Me Boo. Thank you very much, Pit X. <laughs>